Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 245. And with that number, want to give a shout out to U.S. national team midfielder and 2015 Women's World Cup champion Shannon Box, who played 245 minutes for the Chicago Red Stars in the 2014 NWSL season after giving birth to daughter Zoe. That obscure stat is one of many that you can find in the first ever printed version of the Keeper Notes NWSL Almanac, now available for purchase at KeeperNotes.com. And it's fitting that I can use a Shannon Box stat for this episode because in the first chat today, I spoke with Andrew Helms, who, along with Meredith Hodnott, just released a new podcast for ESPN 30 for 30 called Backpass. It's the story of the WSA, or rather what happened after Brady Chastain converted that famous penalty kick in 1999. Shannon Box's U.S. national team career would not have happened without the WSA. This is the most thoroughly researched story of that league, the first ever fully professional women's soccer league in the world since it folded back in 2003, and it includes a lot of details that have never been made public before. You can find Backpass by searching for ESPN 30 for 30 podcasts and be sure to like or subscribe to Backpass or rather to the 30 for 30 podcasts. So ESPN gets the message that more content like this would be very, very welcome. The second chat is with former pro player Casey White, who won the 2009 WPS championship with Sky Blue and who also earned 18 caps for the senior U.S. Women's National Team between 2006 and 2010. White is now coaching, and she recently joined the NWSL broadcast crew as an analyst for the NWSL live streams. So really hope you enjoy these two chats. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Andrew Helms writer and reporter and producer and all kinds of great things from New York, who just came out with a new podcast, part of ESPN 30 for 30 podcast called The Back Pass, which is all about one of my favorite subjects, um, the WSA. Andrew, I, I have to ask, like, how did you end up doing a mess like this on my all-time favorite subject? Hey, and thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I think about this time last year i was i was realizing that we were coming up on the 20th anniversary of the 1999 women's world cup and obviously that was a that was a huge moment in my life i remember uh, all the kids in the neighborhood came over to watch and obviously it was this moment that seemed to transcend sport and kind of splashed women's women's soccer on the front pages of magazines and morning shows for the first time ever and Having known kind of this narrative that there was this team, you know, that, that succeeded against all odds and kind of by force of their personality brought women's soccer to the to the mainstream for the first time, I was kind of curious if there, what was the what was the deeper history and and it as I started digging into the story of '99, I realized what would happen if you if instead of kind of situating the story so that it ends with Brandy Chastain and the Rose Bowl, what if you started the story the day after and said this is a team that that for the first time has captured the hearts and minds of America. And the thing that they want to do more than anything is, is have a women's professional soccer league, a place where they could have, make a living, 
have some stability, not be living suitcase to suitcase, provide a platform for, for the growth of the game beyond just the 20 women on the national team, but have all the thousands of, of women who are playing D1 soccer, give them a chance to become professionals for the first time. And as I started looking into that story and, and, and saw that there was opposition from U.S. soccer and opposition from MLS and the fact that the league folded five days before the 2003 Women's World Cup, it just seemed like there were all of these really interesting narratives and, and threads that we could really pull on that spoke to the current moment we're in right now heading into the, the 2019 Women's World Cup. So that was kind of the origin story for, for Backpass. And thankfully, ESPN was down to go along for the ride. And then the podcast is out now for everyone to listen. And it is such an amazing story. And, you know, as a lot of my longtime listeners know, something that I've referenced a lot, because now at this point in our in our U.S. women's soccer history, it's almost a footnote uh, similar to WPS. It's like, yeah, we've had two field leagues. Now we have this one and this one's lasted the longest. And of course, I, I love being able to say we've never had a league that's lasted seven seasons. You know, we we're finally getting to the point where these players playing more than a hundred regular season games. But I think it's so important to, to go back and have a true history told of the, of that period. And, and like you said, it's like, let's not end with Brandy Chastain kicking that goal. What, what happens next? Um, how do you translate that once every four years excitement into a week in week out, league and one of the things that, that does tend to, to frustrate me sometimes when we talk women's soccer in leagues is that there's this assumption that each league has learned from the previous leagues and that's not necessarily true because it's not like it's the same people going oh we're not going to do this next time you know um so specific to wsa as as you started to research what what surprised you about about behind the scenes of the league both both good and bad yeah, I think so for folks who haven't listened yet, you know, the the league had obviously been the brainchild of the women's national team. Um we spoke to to Lauren Gregg who is the assistant coach of the of the women's national team for for years and she said, you know, there was this abyss that if you were a woman who who graduated from college and had nowhere to play, you you fell into abyss and abyss after college and there was nowhere to go. And so this had been kind of the the dream of this team for so long and they wanted the league to be their their kind of post-99 legacy. But what really came together for them was suddenly with the the swell of success with 99, there were a group of, of cable investors um, led principally by this guy, John Hendricks, who founded the Discovery Channel, who thought and were willing, you know, it's time for a women's league in this country and, and we're willing to put some financial financial resource, resources behind it. So they had this kind of incredible investment group that included some of the biggest names in cable TV in the country, um, folks from Cox Enterprises, folks from Comcast, folks from Time Warner, you know, all the people that you <laughs> hate to get on the phone, but they, they were the ones... Uh, <laughs> They were the ones who, who were backing this league, right? And so they, you know, and, and as you'll see as you get toward the stories of, of successor leagues, this has been a, a challenge is that the narrative that kind of existed around WSA about that women's leagues don't make money, that women's leagues are a money pit, um, that narrative is, is not totally true. And, and, is, and they've had a hard time attracting the caliber of investors because that narrative that's taken hold. So uh, it, I'm glad we got to kind of go back and unpack 
some of the story about the behind the scenes finances, because I think as you'll hear in the show, one of the big, one of the big issues is uh, this, this issue of, of budgeting and how much do things cost and how much do things cost to get off the ground. And, and the, one of our kind of main takeaways is that WSA was a league that was just kind of finding its footing and just figuring out how to succeed as a business when, when the investors kind of ran out of, of runway on, on wanting to keep going especially to have such big investors, but they were publicly held companies for the most part, right? So you have, you know, boards and investors to report to, and, you know, they're not going to have those long, patient, deep pockets, you know, unlike MLS, where, you know, we all know that it was really three billionaires who kept Mm -hmm. that league going, um, yeah. Even after contraction and, you know, all, all kinds of issues, you know, and I, and I loved the quote that you have in, in the podcast of, you know, Don Garber saying to one official, like, you guys only log in? Like, wow, my MLS bosses would love me if I only lost 16 million, you know, yeah. and, and you, you and I both know that the financially each year the picture was getting better, but. I, but like mm-hmm. you said, it's like the runway, the runway was too short. And for me, that, that points to what I feel is the, the biggest area of discrimination in women's sports. To me, it's not the straight off equal pay or media coverage. It's that business back end of, I will take a risk on men's soccer, even, I, even mm-hmm. if I lose 20 times the amount but I sure. won't take the same risk on women's soccer. And if I do take the risk on women's soccer, I'm not going to go all out to try to sell it. So, you know, you're, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot. So that's yeah. why I, I was so excited, you know, when, when you contacted me last fall to say, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm working on this and, mm-hmm. um, and just hearing all the different people that you spoke to, because a lot of times when this stuff does get covered, it's usually just the big name players. It's like, okay, let's talk to Julie Fowdy. Let's talk to me. And there, and there's so much behind the scenes in terms of Mm -hmm. uh, all the different GMs or, or operationally or referees or, or that player who's not a big name. So, so of course, one of the other parts of, of the story that I really enjoyed listening to was Shannon Box's story and, and Jackie Little's story, because, Mm-hmm. You know, those were names. So we wouldn't have known there's the, known those names without the WSA. And of course, without the WSA, Shannon Box never would have been on the national team and gone on to play, what, 195 games. Right. Yeah, I think I think it was important for us because when, when we started putting the story together, we realized we had this we had this really interesting story about budgets and boardrooms. And, you know, basically it's rooms full of men making decisions about women's game. Right. And, and we needed some, we needed a way to have a listener kind of get emotionally invested, like to have, to know what was really at stake. And that's why it was so important to, to kind of weave in the narratives of, of Shannon Box, you know, who obviously had this tremendous WSA career. And I think as we show in the story, you know, she, she almost quit, you know, at the end of her, at the start of the third season, when if, if she was going to have to take a pay cut, 
she was going to have quit the game. And then, you know, the, the national team would have been deprived the amazing career of, of Shannon Box. And that was right it's, after it's, she was traded, too. So she was like, right she was wait, traded. wait, yeah. I'm moving across. The, you're, you're making me move across the country and you're going to cut my pay. And that was a piece that I had never heard before, because I do remember yeah. very clearly the third season. They talked about that the founding players, the original 20 mm-hmm. from the Women's World Cup, we're all going to take a really huge pay cut, basically going, you know, the ones that were making 80,000 were going down to 60,000 and and similar. And I hadn't known that they stepped up as a group to take that cut so that the lower paid players would not have to take a cut. And that is freaking huge. Yeah, no, the initial, the initial proposal was across the board pay cuts for everyone in the top income bracket. And Shannon, even though she was only making something like 45000 a year, was in the top income bracket because where she'd been drafted, I think, in the third round of the inaugural draft, right. which, put her, right. which put her higher up on the salary scale than some others. So she was eligible for those, those pay cuts. And so it's a testament to the, the national team that they basically voted, deliberated, came together and decided – you know, and I mean, I think the the other piece with that pay cut is the national team players had a five year guaranteed salary, right? They right. agreed to give up their guarantees for years four and five as well. So it wasn't just the twenty thousand dollar pay cut for the third season; it was they were giving up guaranteed money for years four and five. So it totaled about two hundred thousand dollars of of money a player that they chose to give up with the knowledge that, you know, it's more, it's more important to us to have a third season of the league than it is for each of us to have, you know, a quarter million dollars. Um, and they made, right. that, they made that choice. And ultimately, right. It, it shot them in the foot because when the league folded, they didn't get that guaranteed money anymore. Cause they, there, there was no fourth season. They didn't right. get paid. Right. Right. But thank God they made that choice because if you didn't yeah. have a third season, Think think of that narrative going forward. And also, mm-hmm. again, Shannon Box would not have made the national team. She got called yeah. into that, that last camp before mm-hmm. the 2003 World Cup, got named to the World Cup roster without yeah. having earned a cap. <laughs> exactly. The last player to ever do that. So, I mean, it's a testament to yeah. the... I mean, one of the other things everyone, like, we, we should remember about WUSA and kind of one of the tragedies of WUSA is that WSA was the best women's soccer league, I would argue, ever in world history. It had the highest caliber players. You know, if you look across the board right now, they're great players in England. They're great players in France. They're great players in NWSL. But there was no other game in the time. If you were a top women's soccer player, you played in the United States and you played in WUSA. And so there's never been a league that has had that much top tier international and American talent as the WUSA. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things a few folks have said is the, the great fundamental unfortunate reality of this is if, if somehow we'd found a way with investors, sponsors, having folks been willing to, um, to keep WSA going, that league would be entering what near its, uh, almost in its 20th year at this 15th, point, 16th, imagine, 17th, yeah, 15th, 16th. Yeah. yeah. Imagine, imagine what that would look like, um, in terms of. Uh, growth in individual markets. If some of those WSA Spons- teams sponsorship, could US take advantage pool, of the soccer-specific stadiums, right? Like, like that broadcast, I mean, such a, social right? media. If we want to get it, I know you do. But if you, you want to get into the weeds of what went wrong, is the the biggest thing they miss they under they underestimated in their initial budgeting. And I think they're like, 
the, the two things you need to think about with WSA on the business side are like, one, they just had a vast, they vastly underestimated how much it was going to cost to start a league. And that's right. a self-inflicted wound. And they needed to have gone in with, with a much clearer understanding of what this thing was going to cost to get off the ground. They budgeted right. something like a, a million dollars for the first season in terms of stadium rent. They spent closer to 25 or $26 million. If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't have the numbers in front right. of me. But, and, but and, like, and a million sounds a, a million sounds like a lot, but when you've got um, eight teams playing mm-hmm. playing uh, what eleven home games each, that's that's a lot of games, yeah. and that doesn't count your playoffs. Yeah, it's a, and it's expensive. A lot of those stadiums that they use, you know, the soccer infrastructure in America is not what it is today. There weren't soccer specific stadiums ready to go that had first class amenities for, for a professional sporting experience. And so, you know, at Nickerson field where the Boston breakers played who were, who were ultimately one of the most financially successful teams uh, there, there were millions of dollars in renovations that, that um, the investment group took on at Torero stadium where, where Julie Fowdy and the San Diego spirit played RFK stadium, which was the drew the highest attendance. They had something like 14,000 coming every in, in year one, that stadium is super expensive to rent. It's the reason why DC United got out of there as soon as they could is because you can't make money when you're in that stadium as a, as a professional sports team, you need to have a, a place where you can control, you know, concessions, revenue, revenue um, parking. parking, all that luxury boxes, like all of it. And so, um, it's why it's why it's so hard to make money <laughs> running <laughs> running a pro sports league, right? Or and even you cover your costs, other, <laughs> right? Or even cover your costs, right? And that's where you get to the other pieces. Is they had a they had they on the one hand you had a vastly they vastly underestimated what it would cost, and that made it a lot harder later on as we get to the end of right. the story for the investment group to keep losing money until the the league would break even, and that's the other piece that I think gets, gets maybe too much attention is, um, sorry, the first piece is what gets too much attention is they mismanaged it, they blew through $100 million, yada, 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 that whole narrative. It was their mismanagement. Yes. Should the first CEO have been flown into New York from Denver every week and put up in no. a, at, the, at the Lennox house in New York City? No, but she was also fired after the first year, and they brought in someone who relocated the league to to Atlanta, cut costs, and got things down more in line with 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 a with a working budget for what the league should cost. Right? They they made they had a really bad first season on financially, but their second and third seasons were actually pretty good um, in terms of in terms of the numbers. And that's where you get to this other piece that I think we don't talk enough about, which is. Um, and I think the comparison with MLS is really is really useful when when MLS was down two hundred fifty million dollars after five years, right? That's a higher burn rate than WSA. Um, WSA right. after five years, if they'd kept going, would have been at closer to one hundred forty million in losses. Um, Don Garber sat down with Phil Anschutz, Bob Kraft, and Lamar Hunt, and those guys agreed to write more, put in more money to keep the league going, right? And WSA's investors just didn't have that kind of commitment. Um, and that's not, it's, it's hard to knock them because they were one, they were willing to lose $100 million on women's sports. Um, but at the same right. time, uh, you, you don't want to criticize the investment group um, at the same time because they, they lost. But I think you also um, 
can point out that they they had overly rosy and optimistic expectations for what this would cost and how long it would take. I mean, there's great archival footage of John Hendricks before the first game saying, you know, most businesses take about three years to break even. We think this one will take about five years to break even. Oh my gosh. And that's, yeah. And that's, that's, and that's, that's like, rosy glasses. <laughs> yeah. And that's just, you know, he came from TV discovery channel. That's what it, that's what, you know, he was coming from a very different kind of business. Um, one that was very successful, but one that had real different economics. And uh, so that's kind of the, the great, the great question for me. And, and, you know, hopefully someone will ever if keep digging into this, but it is how exactly that initial WSA business plan came together because they were consulting with us soccer and they were consulting with folks from major league soccer. And how is it that, given the fact that they had commissioned basically the M- the architect of the MLS business plan to write this, this, this budget, how did that guy, Mark Abbott, who had been through the startup of MLS, put together a budget that was so naive in terms of uh, what it would cost to start a league? I was not able to speak to him, but if, if someone can ever answer that question, I think it's a, <laughs> an, imp- an important one. Well, and how did they, how did they end up, paying for a lot of renovations at venues that they didn't own or control. Like when I heard about uh, the renovations that they paid for, you know, a few million dollars worth at Torero Stadium, it's like, wow, you know, does, <laughs> is that university ever done anything for them? It's like, that's, yeah. that's amazing. So, so a lot of those investments were actually made off the league's books. If you remember the league mm-hmm. was a single entity, right? So a lot of right. those investments were made by the individual investors. Amos Hostetter in Boston paid for the Boston renovation. The Cox Family Enterprises, which is a family company, but Cox paid for the the San Diego renovation. Um, gotcha. But again, they they didn't factor into WSA's books for that for that season. But what it did mean was you had investors who were shelling out two to three million extra dollars early on, and that made it you know the way a few folks explained to us is when John Hendricks needed to get the investment group to put more money in. All right, the first time, which is a meeting that you hear in Backpass, he's able to get them to pony up the money for the second season. He goes back at the at the end of the at the end of the second season, and with once they get the pay cut, he's willing to twist arms and get those guys to put in more money for a third season. But basically, at that moment, it's pretty clear that Tomcast is done, Time Warner's done, and they're not going to be able to go back to those guys for more money. And that's when. Uh, the hunt for new investors, new sponsors, and potentially, you know, money from from U.S. soccer comes into play at the, in the third season, trying to save it for ahead of the World Cup. Right, right. And I remember when they had to make the announcement that they were shutting it down. And I, I think what I remember most is the people saying, "Why did they have to do it now? What did I have to do it now?" And you know, they waited as long as they could. But if they didn't shut it down by that day, they weren't going to be able to pay people severance and honors, like all kinds of stuff like that. So they were trying to make sure everybody was taken care of, but like went as long as possible, something like that. It's, I think that's a big part of it. I think they also hoped, and I mean, this is, this is their kind of the sign of how desperate they were, you know, right? Like John Hendricks. And they, they kind of thought that if, um, if, they announced they were shutting down. That would light a fire under the pants of some of the folks who they had been talking to. Um, right. 
to maybe get them right. over the line saying, you know, you can save this. You can be the person who brings it back. Um, and, you know, we talked to a lot of the, the players on the national team. They truly believed going into the 2003 World Cup and talk about how, how we can talk about how it affected their performance. But they believed that if they won the World Cup in 03 and they were able to do what they did in 99 and capture the nation's attention again, that they could bring the league back single handedly. And so, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think you know, Brian Scurry makes this point is just talk about having to go from basically the, the legacy you hope to leave behind on soccer in America folding to now having to focus on defending your championship in a world cup title um, and having to do it with the added pressure of not just, you know, winning, winning a world cup, but also trying to save the jobs of, of hundreds of women who, who were going to lose their jobs because this league went away. I think, I think there's, there's no way you can say that that didn't, that didn't impact the way they played and the, the heaviness with which oh, they carried not. themselves. That of tournament. course not. It, it totally explains, you know, when you, when you look at the footage of after that loss of Germany, how they're just, they're just destroyed. But what, what frustrates me in general is, is and cause we even hear this now that like, Oh, if the women win the world cup, then this, you know, this will do this for NWSL. It's like, right. wait, what kind of business predicates itself on once every four years, the Americans exactly. have to win the women's world cup. Like, like that's, yeah. that's really an untenable <laughs> business plan. Um, and what, what's funny is what the 2003 World Cup showed. It's like, even though it was held during the college football and NFL season, unlike 99, even mm-hmm. though it was a last-minute move to the U.S., they still got good ratings, great attendance, merch. You know, like th- there's, sure. there's so much that ca- came out of that. And, and of course, yeah. the investment was a lot less because by that time you had – Home Depot was open. Crew Stadium mm-hmm. was open. We were starting to see the beginning of that soccer-specific generation. And mm-hmm. and when you think of what happened in the next few years in terms of, you know, the beginning of Facebook, the beginning of YouTube, and, and we saw with even the WPS, they were early adopters of Twitter. They were huge on mm-hmm. Twitter long before MLS ever bothered with Twitter. Like, think about those connecting years between WSA and WPS, like how they would have, they would have already had the base to like, you know, yeah. explode. Yeah. Yeah. No, there would have been, there would have been issues. The, there, there were the North Carolina team and the, both the time Warner teams would probably either have needed to be shuttered or moved or, you know, they, they needed, they right. needed a new solution for those teams, but there was a pretty solid base. Um, I mean, the, the breakers GM Joe Cummings said we were basically, at a point where we were more or less breaking even and the the investors were willing to fund it indefinitely. You know, you had a few teams in those situations, the Atlanta beat were doing better. Um, the, the free, the freedom were outdrawing some MLS teams that year. Uh, they were just, they were just stuck at RFK, which was too expensive, (laughs) but they were stuck at RFK as a money pit, but like John Hendricks was willing to keep going, you know? So there, there were a lot of signs of, of positivity. It's just, uh, Ultimately, that investment group, in a way, unlike you know, unlike MLS, where Phil Anschutz was willing to come in and save other teams, John Hendricks and the, that investment group didn't have the financial commitment to to save other teams. They they were willing to right. keep their own teams going, but they weren't going to come in and say, 
we're going to, we're going to individually, the three of us who were willing to keep going, which was, you know, Amos Hostetter, uh, John Hendricks and Cox, they weren't willing to come in and do, do the same thing. And so that's ultimately, you know, why the, why the league ends up, ends up going down is that they couldn't get, they just couldn't get a, a new investor. And they, they did actually have a Chinese investor that they'd flown over. Lynn Morgan, the CEO had gone over to, to meet and they got pretty close to signing, but ultimately, uh, you know, the timing was off. And then once the league shut down, you know, I think the, the real, the, I was wishful thinking to think it would be easier to restart it once the league was announced that it was a suspension of operations, you know, by that point, right. there had been a narrative right. that had been built up that it wasn't, um, that it wasn't viable and wasn't successful. So that made it a lot harder to convince people to, to come in. And, and of course, they had the the two festivals the following summer. I, I worked the one in in LA, right. which they were hoping to resurrect. But I, you know, I really don't think anything was going to come of that. I mean, really, those two games just served as an additional opportunity for April Heinrichs to see, you know, fringe players uh, before she named her Olympic roster for two thousand four. You know, and like you, like you said about them announcing that the league was folding before the world cup and hoping that that would spur sponsorship or investor groups. I remember, I think it was Adidas that suddenly was running an ad like save women's soccer. And I'm thinking, but like, stop running an ad. Are you reaching out to, <laughs> to the league? Or are you just running an ad? You know, I think the sponsorship, you know, I, to tell a story from that, we didn't make the podcast. I, I think the sponsorship stuff's really interesting because when the league folded, that was kind of the spin that the league put out was we folded because of lack of sponsorship revenue. And that, you know, was kind of uh, a curse on your bullshit. You know, that that was a, yeah. like, I think that was a, a pretty bullshit narrative that the league put out because ultimately, you know, a few folks who worked for the league told us, look, our sponsorship numbers, when you looked at what our TV ratings were, when you looked at our attendance sizes, our sponsorship numbers were on par with what you'd expect, if not higher than in terms of, of corporate sponsorship. You know, you can't yeah. expect corporate sponsors to be the ones to go above and beyond in terms of uh, keeping a league going when you as investors aren't willing to close that funding gap, right? You can't expect corporate sponsors to out of the goodwill of their own heart or charity basically, right? Give money to a, to a pro sports league. Um, with that said, you know, um, the, the, you have this kind of interesting situation where, like you said, Adidas, you know, when, when the founding investors of WSA wanted to try to find the league's first kit sponsor, they flew to, I want to say it was like Sun Valley, Idaho. If you've ever been, it's like a ski town. Now it's like the exclusive enclave of the 1%, you know, it's this very right. high-end, high-end ski town. And so... You have the founder of Nike flying in to meet John Hendricks and, and Jim Kennedy from, from Cox Enterprises. And so these three guys, you know, I was I imagine sitting in some like, you know, smoky room with like a buffalo head over them or whatever, as they've just come off the slopes. Right. And they're talking about whether Nike is going to be the founding sponsor of, of, of the league. And basically Phil Knight says, look, we love the idea of women's pro soccer. We've been huge backers of the national team. We've supported Mia Hamm, but 
we're not going to be a sponsor of the league. We're going to keep sponsoring Nia. We're going to keep sponsoring right. some players on the national team. But ultimately, you know, Nike made the calculation that Mia Hamm's brand visibility is way bigger and they're going to, they're going to reach a much bigger audience of people supporting doing running commercials with Mia Hamm than they will funding the league. And this is kind of this, this interesting trouble that, that I think the women's pro leagues, not just WSA have run into is you have these incredibly popular and prominent national team players. You know, Alex Morgan has what 50 million Instagram followers or something like that. Right. You have these, these right. individuals with huge platforms, platforms that exceed the, the, the brand visibility of these leagues. And how is it that we get corporations to value backing a league and not just backing, you know, a Mia Hamm or a Brandy Chastain or an Alex Morgan. So I do, I do have some sympathy for the, the league's investors in, in that regard. But at the same time, just because your audience isn't, your audience isn't that big in 2003, your TV ratings are crap. MLS's TV ratings are crap too. It's got you as investors have to be the ones to say, we're going to keep this going until, until our TV audience is big enough to warrant bigger sponsorship dollars. Right. Right. And you know, again, to make the the MLS comparison, you know, one of the the big payoffs of signing David Beckham in mm-hmm. 2007 was the exposure that it brought to the league, and clearly they figured out how to market it and and benefit people. I mean, I remember 2001 first season of WSA, you had the Mia effect that wherever she was, right? You know, for for away games, you know, teams marketed around that, and you have to do that, and. And in mm-hmm. a way, as, as a home fan, it, it might suck, but I've I've seen that with, with the Dash. The first season when the rain came, oh my God, it was like sit in the room, Maggie Morpino, right. solo. And but what we but we've seen now that the, the league and the club has lasted long enough. So you're into the Dash's sixth season. We're seeing that no, this is my home team. And yeah, I know there's national teamers and maybe I want their autograph post game, but during the game. I'm all about my home team and you can't flip a switch and suddenly it's on. Mm-hmm. That's something that takes time to grow. Same thing with building the MLS brands. Like, yeah. you know, Dynamo, Dynamo meant nothing in 2006. You, you had to build that. Well, no, we, we lucked exactly. out obviously with inheriting the best team in the league and, and then they right. went to championships. But you think about all of these brands were starting from scratch for the most part, without the benefit of any known player. But you think of all the work that MLS did over the years in terms of exposure, buying their own TV time until they were finally big enough so that Mm -hmm. now it's a deal with Fox. It's a deal with ESPN. It's a deal with Univision where they're paying for the time. And, And I think it's easy for a lot of young fans who don't have much memory of early MLS to look at MLS go, oh, they, they have all these cushy things. It's like, it's taken years to get there. It's and like you years. said, yeah, they, they've still lost way more than you could combine all three, NWSL, WPS, and WSA, and you still wouldn't be anywhere near that on, on a yearly average. Yeah. So, well, um, like two, one, one, I think two, two quick points there is one. Okay. The, the Freedom GM, Katie Button, told us a very similar story about in the middle of the third season, they were at a game in Philly, and it was the Freedom versus the Philadelphia Charge. And in the middle, it's like, a, you know, one of these summer blistering hot days, humid. Yeah. And in the middle of the game, Mia Hamm tripped a, a player on the charge. 
got a yellow card and all of the Philadelphia fans as Philly fans are prone to do, right? Just start booing Mia Hamm. And she thought, you know, if they're booing Mia Hamm, the star American player of all time, this league is going to make it. And ultimately, yes. Uh, yeah. You know, but that, that's, that, that, that was part of, you know, this narrative of this league, this league was getting better, but you talked about how long it took MLS to, to get off the ground and, and it's totally true. But I also think the other piece that we look at in the podcast that we haven't really touched on here is all of the institutional support that MLS got from the U S soccer federation to get off the ground and how much that, you know, you talked about their TV deal, a big component of of MLS remaining on TV in the early 2000s was that the federation basically agreed to bundle rights to federation games in with MLS games on that ESPN deal through, you know, everyone's favorite boogeyman, Soccer United Marketing, which, you know, we don't need to get into that wormhole. Yeah. But that basically yeah. the federation the federation ensured that major league soccer games would remain on TV, right? The federation gave major league soccer a loan to get off the ground to do, do that initial stadium planning, that budgeting, that initial staff outlays. Um, and that, and that, that institutional support that has come from the federation, you know, in some ways, WUSA was one of the first leagues to try to succeed outside of, of what has become the very close knit relationship between us soccer and major league soccer. Um, and and it didn't succeed, and I think that's a, that's a part of this story that that is also a, a needs to be need, needs to be mentioned is that is that the women were seen as a threat to what to what U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer were building on the men's side of the game, and well, I don't think you could say they outright conspired to undermine it. There was hostility, and there was not a lot of there was not a sense of collaboration that all soccer was good, right? There was not a sense right. of uh, rising uh, tide lifts this all is a, boats. This is a, a rising tide lifts all boats. Perfect. Yeah. There was not that sense of, of camaraderie. Um, you know, basically the only team that ever had double headers was DC United and the Washington Freedom. And they stopped doing them after the first season because they got into an argument about whose fans would sit where, you know, and those games were drawing <laughs> 30, 30,000 fans a game. Yeah. Right? That, those games yeah. benefited both teams, but we got they got in a pissing match over uh, over over whose fans would sit where and whose fans had priority and you know that stuff stopped and so it's it's this really unfortunate other piece of the story is that is that you know kudos to U.S. Soccer for what they've done with NWSL kudos to the Portland Timbers for for backing and the other MLS teams that have now backed women's teams but that wasn't there in the in the early days and and it's and it's a counterfactual to guess but you know you do you do wish that there had been that institutional support for the for the women's league that had you know probably the highest visibility player women's team of all time and the best investment group ever for a women's pro league of all time and i'm so glad you brought that up the the u.s soccer angle how much how much support uh mls has gotten over the years and even with you know this third league finally running longer than the other leagues and having been launched basically, you know, by, by us soccer. I know there's a lot of fans like, I wish we could get us soccer out of it. And I, I feel more and more. I'm like, no, us soccer needs to do more because if they've done all of this for the men, and this comes back to the lawsuit that, um, you know, that the women have right now, it's, it's like, why aren't you doing that for the women when there's just as much potential in some cases, even more because you have less competition worldwide 
you're never going to have the best players in the world all together ever again, but we could still be the preferred destination. And and like you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, that's something that that's going to be gone very soon. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, um, that's kind of one of the, the great tragedies is, is that basically after, I don't know, I don't know. Would you, would you agree that the 99 world cup was probably the most, successful American soccer event of all time, probably trying to definitely, especially, especially when you, when you factor the risk that they were taking, because 94 for the men, which still remains the most profitable men's world cup and the most attended, even though it had fewer games than the current version of the world cup, Mm -hmm. that wasn't a risk. FIFA came into Correct. that going, we're going to put it in BAMS. We're so excited to get in the U.S. This is a whole untapped market. Lots mm-hmm. of Americans will go. Everyone will travel to the U.S. There's no barriers. You know, There was no infrastructure that needed to be built. Where the risk that the 99 organizers were, were taking when FIFA was like, no, we want you to do it in small venues on the East Coast. They're like, Correct. no, right. we're going whole hog on this and we're going to Correct. big stadiums yeah. or doing this right. So before the tournament even started, five months before the tournament started, at the draw, they announced they had already sold 200,000 tickets, which was almost mm-hmm. double the attendance for for 95. So I, I would agree right. with that because the, the level of risk that they were taking – the work they had to put into it and the legacy it left, not just with WSA, but related to 2003, that there's no way USA would have been able to get 2003 at the last minute without having had 99. If, yeah. if that hadn't happened, 2003 at the last minute moved out of China would have gone to small European country that had six, 10,000 seaters. Right. Yeah, and it's and so. it's this great tragedy that that after that event, right, that we couldn't all come together, you know, as a, yeah. as a country, and and think the women deserve this, and we're going to do it right, and let's let's give John Hendricks and his deep pocketed investors the kind of resources and staying support. power and support that they'll need to do this, so we can do it right. And hey, guess what? You know that budget you've got there. I think you're going to need. I think you guys are going in. You need to go into this with a little more open eyes, right? Like. Where where was that support and that guidance when when it was needed? It wasn't there, and I think if if perhaps it was, you would have you could have seen a very different a very different story. But unfortunately, we had to tell a we had to tell a sad story, but an important one. And I hope everyone will will listen. Well, and and the last thing I want to add, Andrew, um, one of the biggest mm-hmm. things that I learned working in soccer operations, both a tiny bit for WSA. Um, some on my own, some for CONCACAF, some for the Dynamo, is you can only reduce your expenses so much, but mm-hmm. there is no limit. There's no limit to revenue. And, exactly. and, and I feel I feel like that always been such a focus, both fans, media, even people running the game themselves of like, oh, well, if we could just chop the salaries in half, if we could just not pay for this, if we can travel with one fewer player. And, and I feel like if you put that same energy into selling merch, selling a sponsorship, working on a TV deal, you know, that, that then you don't have to, you know, you can only reduce costs so much until it starts, you know, uh, undermining you the final season of WPS, they got rid of full-time sales reps. It's like, well, then exactly. <laughs> go your ticket yeah. sales. But anyway, that's a whole other yeah. rant. I, sh- I should probably end my rant. Um, but I'm so <laughs> excited. 
I'm so excited, you know, that you were able to to talk to me today. And, and I can't tell you how excited I was when you first contacted me last fall that this was something that was happening and happening on a on a true deep research, contacting all of the players from back not the the typical, oh, let's look back and write one paragraph about this league mm-hmm. that failed because it yeah. is it is such an such an important story to tell. So if my listeners want to listen to the podcast, which this episode is called The Back Pass, how do they find mm-hmm. it? That's great. So on your favorite podcasting app, um, you can uh, search 30 for 30, the just 30, F-O-R-3-0, 30 for 30 podcast. It's on Spotify, uh-huh. it's on Apple Apple Podcasts, it's on Stitcher, it's on the ESPN, has a 30for30podcast.com, is its own website, you can listen to it right there. So literally anywhere anywhere you get your podcast, if you just search 30for30podcast, 30 Backpass will be, will be at the top of the feed. And so appreciate, you know, listening, and obviously if you like the show, like and subscribe to... Um, 30 for 30, because I think if, if a lot of folks like and subscribe, they'll be more committed to doing more stories like this, because this is, you know, credit to ESPN for putting the money behind uh, this story, because sometimes, as you said, you know, it's a, it's a every four years and we'll pay attention to it. And uh, ESPN was great to want to go deep and, and put serious money behind a investigative story that tried to tell the, the inner life of, of, of a league that a lot of people have forgotten about. Well, and it's, and it's such a great story. And, and thanks again for being available to talk about it today. Yeah, of course. All right. Thanks so much, Jen. All right. Jen Cooper here with former U.S. national team player and current NWSL broadcaster, Casey White. Casey... NWSL broadcast work. How did how did that happen? I, I remember seeing your name on the talent list and going, "I know her. She played with the national team. This is great." <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's it's something that I've always thought would be something I wanted to be a part of. I I thought you know post career, um, I always knew I wanted to get into coaching, but it had always been in the back of my mind. And I had a work colleague that actually was a part of Vista um, in Fort Lauderdale and had such a great experience with them. And he thought that it would be something good for me and put my name in and gave me the opportunity to, to finally try it out. And I'm just so excited to see an addition of someone who has played not just with the national team, but also pro soccer in the U.S. You know, so you, along with Lori Lindsay, along with Jordan Angeli, you know, building up this 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 group of of former pro players that are actually calling the game they used to play. I love that. Oh, it's yeah, it's awesome. I mean, as a a player and even younger, we didn't see that as often. And so now there's so many more opportunities um, for former players to get involved to share some of the side of playing in a league, um, playing in a professional league in the United States. What that's like, giving some insight that you know fans may not understand about that. And um, obviously, there's the soccer piece insight, but I think that familiarity with what it means to be a professional player in the United States, I'm hopeful is is great for an experience for the fan as they listen to us. So talk about preparing for a broadcast, especially when this is something, this is a pretty new skill set for you. Obviously watching the game and breaking down the game is not new, 
but doing it live while people are watching and you have to explain it to them. How did you prepare for your first game? Oh my goodness. I, I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I, uh, I haven't experienced butterflies like that in a while. Um, it's, it's kind of one of those things of like, all right, it's game time. Let's go. And <laughs> it was an interesting new feeling for me. Um, you know, playing at the highest level, you experience that, you know, you can coach at certain games, you experience that. And, it was a new challenge and just the way my brain is, I, I love a new challenge. Um, and I really went and spoke to former teammates that were doing um, broadcasting, um, some work, like my work colleague that he has done broadcasting himself and really just asked for some advice. How do I prepare? What questions, you know, do I ask coaches? Um, what are they really looking for from me? And then I just had to kind of go with it. Um, and I did, and I was, oh man, I got to improve. I got to get better. Um, but <laughs> part of my personality is to go, all right, just give me feedback. Um, I've been like that as a player. I'm like that in my coaching career. I just need feedback so I can get better. And I've taken that mentality into broadcasting and just trying to improve each time. Well, and one of the big things that I've learned about broadcast the last few years is there's really no substitute for just being live on air. You can practice as much as you want, uh, you, you know, like watching it, watching a game tape and pretending to call it, but there's no substitute for, for doing it live. So you only get better by doing games, doing games, doing games. Mm-hmm. So that means like your, your learning curve is, is so public, but I think it's similar to soccer where there's just no substitute for a game situation. That's why, you know, coaches always want competitive games in preseason because practice is never going to simulate the game. You're absolutely right. Um, It definitely is, like you said, the public learning curve and you put yourself out there, you hope you've prepared, you know, you put in the training, if you will. And now you're like, all right, now it's time for me to perform and be able to do what needs to be done in a live setting. And that that's nerve wracking. And um, I do believe, you know, my, my past career has prepared me for that, but it's something that, um, you know, you can't do it behind the scenes. You just have to put it all out there and, it's good or it's not good. And how do we move forward? And that is like playing. And so it's really been, um, it can be a tough environment, but it's also an exhilarating environment to have that as part of your career and um, replicate some things that I experienced early on. And so your first few games under your belt, what, what really stood out for you in terms of NWSL, like what maybe surprised you or, or what impressed you about, about players in the league or, or, or team play that you saw? Yeah, I mean, I've obviously been an avid fan of um, watching the NWSL and, and just the longevity, if you will, of the league right now that's happening and, and the consistency has been great to watch across the years. But now being on the side of really assessing each individual team and what they're doing tactically and the individual players, you just see that the level of player has just increased throughout the entire league um, and the level of play, the amount of internationals that are here playing, um, the level of play has just gone and skyrocketed. It's so much fun to watch. And um, you really see how tactically the league has gotten better. I'm, I'm a coach, so I love being a student of the game and the tactical side and how there's a chess match and how they're playing against each other. And that knowledge mm-hmm. across the board for each player is just um, becoming at a higher and higher le- level. 
Yeah, I, I love that we're hitting a point in this league that we haven't experienced with the previous two. So you have some clubs that have had coaches longer than WSA or WPS existed. So you're seeing club identity develop that we didn't really get a chance to see before and, and how there can be very different styles and different identities. And, and, and then the history of rivalries, like, uh, you know, I, when I was prepping to call Chicago, Seattle, and just noticing that there are three games last year, there's only one goal scored in the three games. And then just the history of all of Rory Dames's games versus Flacco and Anofsi's games, like they were all just ridiculously close games. And, and of course, what happened was Chicago won three zero, so it didn't hold to the pattern. But, <laughs> yeah. like, but it's but it's nice that there's like there's so much information to look at. It's just like wow, this team hasn't beat this team in ten games. You know, there's that there's a real history to it. Absolutely, um, now, there's. <laughs> It's very interesting how there's two two sides to that. One, you know, from the broadcasting side, the amount of information we can get <laughs> to use in our broadcasting as far as, you know, like you said, the history of the game, how they've competed with one another. It's just good for the overall knowledge of everybody that's involved with the NWSL yeah. because people crave knowledge. They want to feel connection, right, to, to yeah. these players, to these wonderful role models that they see every day. And the other side is, you know, as young kids that are watching, they can see a certain style of play. They can see players stay in a league over a long period of time. And that dream that they have of being at that level becomes even more real because it stays around and they see that year after year after year. So the fan base builds, the young players um, stay connected to a pro club, which is so important for the growth of the game. Definitely. Definitely. Now, when you're watching do you do you miss playing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, <laughs> I'll I'll say this. Um, I what I miss about my days as a player is the locker room, the team, you know, and then the feeling on game day when the whistle's about to go. And like we spoke about earlier, it's just all right. Here we go. I've trained. Now let's go compete. Let's get it done. Um, I miss that piece, and I miss my teammates. But I was. I was one of the lucky ones that I stepped away, not from an injury, not from I couldn't play anymore. It just, my heart went in a different direction. And so I've never really had to really go, oh, I wish I could have played longer. I really feel like it ran its course and I was very fulfilled by my playing career. So I, I feel lucky in that regard for sure. Well, and that's that's a great way to be able to go out because, you know, we know the, the soccer gods aren't always kind enough to... <laughs> to allow that, you're right. That, you're right to happen. To happen. But talk a little bit about transitioning from playing at the highest level to you know, okay, and and I don't have a league to play in anymore. So what happens now? Have you been working on a coaching license, or had you already been volunteer coaching? And you know, how did that develop? Um, yeah, so I did my U.S. Soccer B license in 2010. So I was still in the league with the WPS. I was playing for Sky Blue, and um, I was able to go do my licensing. Um, you know, as a former pro player and national team player, I was able to get in there. And um, so I came out of my playing career in two, at the end of 2011 with my B license and some coaching education under my belt with also some experience. 
I couldn't do a whole lot when playing full time, but I really, I was about 90% sure my path was going to go that way. I still had this inkling I might go to med school or back to PA school. That was what I studied, but I pretty much knew that soccer was this huge part of my life and I wanted to go into the coaching side. So I set myself up in that regard and then was able to transition into the coaching side of the game. And so how's that gone so far as that that's that's mostly youth coaching, right? That's not college. I've I've done a little bit of everything. I actually went straight into college coaching. <laughs> yeah, I've been all over. Um, I went straight into college coaching, um, and you know was able to do a few years there at the Division One level, both as a head coach and an assistant coach. Um, I was the U16 youth national team head coach and an assistant with our other youth national teams for a number of years, which was wonderful and and gave me even more of a love for the youth development side of the game. Um, you know, coming from playing at the professional level, the youth seems so far off, you know, like, you know, that was forever yeah. ago that I did that. Um, but I just gained such an appreciation for coaches that can grab those players at those youth developmental ages and spark an inspiration and spark a fire in them to continue mm-hmm. to push through the ranks of playing. So, um, you know, after that, I got into the youth level, the club level, and now I oversee a development academy program here in Florida. That's great. So you, you can groom future players to be World Cup stars, right? That's, that's my hope. Absolutely. <laughs> I just I just don't want to mess it up, right? So um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I, I really feel like there were influential people along my path. Um, and I look mm-hmm. back over my career and like, where were those influential people um, in my career and how did they help me and what role did they play? Because every coach plays a different role for a player that gets right. to the highest level. And I just want to be a coach that shows that it can be done. You know, I was told a lot as a, as a young player, I was too small. It would never happen. You're never going to be on the national team. And I'm here to say, well, that's not true. Look what I was able to do and not because of me, but because of the people along the way and the hard work I put in. And I want to be that for other people. That's awesome. So, so last question for you, Yeah. which teams are you most looking forward to watching in the world cup this summer other than the USA? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, (laughs) I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about, well, three teams, I would say, I think, you know, England is someone that is consistently getting better, right? They're, they've committed to their league in in their own country. Um, They've, they've really sparked interest, you know, around the world with some of the results they've had. I was able to see them on the She Believes Cup here. And I think that they're definitely a contender, you know, to, to go far in the World Cup. The other two teams is France and Spain. Um, they, France a bit more has always had players that are very tactical, that are technical on the ball, um, and they're super dangerous. They combine all the facets of the game, um, and they're mm-hmm. hosting, which is, <laughs> which is always – um, helpful as well. And, and I think Spain has shown at the youth national team levels um, that they have a lot of talent coming through their system. And I think a lot of people out there are going, okay, can they do it at the, the senior level? So I think it's going to be a really fun and interesting um, World Cup to watch. Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one. I mean, of course, when would we not say that about the World Cup? But it just it seems like especially since the addition of eight additional teams last time around, it just it's You can see that more federations have invested in their teams. I don't think we're going to have quite the drop-off 
uh, in talent that we saw a little bit in 2015, where you had Thailand, Ivory Coast coming in for their first ever World Cups. I don't think, you know, there there's that much difference this time around, and that just makes it more exciting to watch. Yes, you're absolutely right. The the game has grown. Um, there's definitely more resources that are being put into the women's game across the world, and um, it's going to make a hard road for anyone. Anyone that stands on that you know podium at the end is going to have gone through a very hard road, and um, that's so good for just the level of the women's game and also the people that are watching to see um, how much time, effort, training all these players put in um, when no one's watching. Right. And I'm just right. really glad that, that the world stage is coming back around this year. Well, Casey, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, and oh, thanks course. for getting involved in, in NWSL broadcasting. I'm always excited when there's a, another former player that joins the crew. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm loving it. I'm going to keep getting better, keep working on it. <laughs> but um, I appreciate you having me on. Time to wrap it up with the back four. We are just two weeks away from the start of the 2019 Women's World Cup. First game kicks off Friday, June 7th with, of course, the host France in that game. That'll just be that one game that day. Last day for teams to announce their 23-player final rosters is this Friday, May 24th. After that, teams can replace a player only due to certified injury up to 24 hours before their first Women's World Cup game. Be sure to check out KeeperNotes.com for all kinds of Women's World Cup-related stat links. And, of course, the U.S. Women's National Team wrap off their send-off series this Sunday over Memorial Day weekend. Uh, They play Mexico at Red Bull Arena in Harrison, New Jersey. Game coverage begins at 10.30 a.m. Yes, 10.30 a.m. Central on ESPN. And then the team will head off to France. Uh, Of course, there's a lot of warm-up matches for other teams before the Women's World Cup kicks off, and I'm trying to list as many as possible on KeeperNotes.com. Just look for that Woso Nerd link on the left-hand side. And as I mentioned in the intro, the Keeper Notes and Newsell Printed Almanac is finally available for purchase, ready to ship. You can buy the print version, you can buy the print and PDF version, or you can just buy the PDF Check it out now at KeeperNotes.com. It does include comprehensive stats for the first six seasons of NWSL. It doesn't have anything about this season, but it's got all the previous six seasons. And last thing for today, one point I'd like to make related to two fairly controversial recent women's soccer topics, potential expansion in Hartford, Connecticut, and the possibility of the 2019 NWSL final being held in North Carolina. I know there are many, many reasons for women's soccer fans to not be happy about either of these developments, but please note that the reason I have tweeted about them is to highlight the league's lack of progress on both fronts. Regardless of where you think an NWSL expansion team should or should not be, and regardless of where you think it's appropriate for the NWSL final to be staged, please be sure to share your frustration as a soccer fan with the league for its inability to move forward on either issue. The biggest women's women's sporting event in the world, featuring more than 50 NWSL players, is about to kick off, and it seems like the league's lights are off and nobody's home. 
All right. So I'll get off my, my soapbox. Um, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone who shares this or tells somebody about it. Thanks to all those who reach out with comments or compliments or even criticisms. You can always email me at keeper at keepernotes.com. And as always, thanks for Sean to putting this all together. But now she's anybody's girl.